did, how did we get into it? <laughs> I think it's really hard uh, now. I think it's always been really hard, and I was very lucky to get into the field when I did. Again, not as a result of careful career planning or any career planning. It's just really hard to do. Uh, Hi, welcome to the Fieldwork Podcast, a show where continuing legal education is delivered through conversations about law and business. This episode, our hosts, Gavin and Kyle, will be interviewing Greg Bertram on mediation. Greg is an experienced litigator, arbitrator, and mediator who owns and operates Pacific ADR Consulting in Seattle, Washington. So from the Canal in Fremont, this is the Fieldwork. So I'm here tonight with uh, Greg Bertram. Greg, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me, Kevin. Yeah, so I'm excited. I, I literally have my uh, sleeves rolled up, and we're, we're going to dig into mediation tonight. Uh, we're, we're trying a l- little something new on, on this episode. Uh, you, The listeners may hear uh, my co-host, Kyle, chime in here and there. That's me. Uh, so, um, yeah, we'll dive right in. I like to start off, uh, I want to learn a little bit more about you, Greg, your background, how you got into mediation. Um, I'm sure it would be interesting to our listeners as well. Um, I guess we'll see, uh, Gavin. Um, well, like you and Kyle, and I'm a lawyer, and I practiced uh, for several years uh, commercial litigation and uh, nearly two years as a corporate lawyer for uh, Jack Benaroya, who was an icon yep. here in Seattle and a very uh, uh, skilled negotiator. I learned a great deal from him. Um, and then I co-founded uh, a firm that is now called Bennett Bigelow Leadham. It was called Bennett Bertram. We were a commercial litigation firm and commercial transactions. And after that firm dissolved, I took my clients uh, north to Edmonds, Washington. I had very small kids and had a commercial litigation and uh, commercial transactions practice and one day, a friend of mine who I had clerked for or clerked with in law school asked me to go to Ketchikan, Alaska to mediate uh, an executive compensation dispute between three executives of a native village corporation. The executives were not native. Um, and so I did. And that's what got me interested. It was just out of left field. Uh, I asked him what I was supposed to do. He didn't know either. <laughs> there was no very little, if any, mediation other than those fe- conversations happen frequently between attorneys. I don't think a lot of people understand that, but I think you're right. <laughs> and even more oddly, uh, the corporation uh, didn't know me, but they knew a lawyer in Anchorage who was a, a professor at the University of Alaska. So okay. they wanted him to co-mediate. Uh, he thought I was the veteran and was uh, <laughs> appalled. Yeah. That I wasn't. And um, but we worked hard for about close to 20 hours straight and it settled. And that's what got me interested. That's awesome. So what is it? uh, What about mediation is interesting to you? Why? Why have you been doing it for so long now? Um, Everything is interesting. It's sort of an addictive process. It's an opportunity to learn a lot about uh, areas of the law that uh, either I knew nothing about or that have changed dramatically. And maybe even more important, it's very satisfying to help people 
and companies, which are still people, uh, sure. a- acting in a different In the eyes of way. the law. Sure. Uh, it's very satisfying to help them at least solve the problem that they present with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. And, and I know in talking with you um, before we started recording and just talking with you in the last uh, several weeks or so, I get the sense that another important aspect of the job is just meeting people, meeting interesting people. Um, you, you seem to thrive on, on human interaction, which is something that I know as a transactional attorney we don't get as much of, but right. uh, it seems like that's an important element as well. It is. Uh, it, I, I like in mediations, I think there are very many parallels to athletic events. Sure. There's an energy, an intensity. Uh, uh, frequently, people are very uh, emotional, very angry. Um, and it's just a, it's an exciting environment. And there's also a finite amount of time that you have to work in. So that really requires, uh, demands really a focus that is unrelenting. Yeah. And um, I train physically. I, I would, as a gym rat, I'd be doing it anyway. Sure. But I find it very, very helpful because one of the worst reputations a mediator can get is that he or she is burned out or disengaged, yeah. really not interested. Any or all of those things are the kiss of death yeah, yeah. For, for one's practice. I imagine that this finite timeline is one that um, helps fight that, that uh, disengagement or the idea of fatigue in a dispute. Um, and so that's interesting. I think that segues nicely into uh, the initial topic I wanted to talk with you about, which is um, some, of the, some of the differences between mediation and arbitration or litigation. And to, to preface, I want to be a little bit brief in this because I think this is a topic we could talk about for a long time, the differences between the different types of dispute resolution. Um, but I think it'd be helpful for listeners to lay that, uh, lay the kind of framework of how is mediation differ from arbitration and litigation at a very high level? Well, it's very different. I think the cardinal feature of mediation is that the parties retain control over really all the decisions. And in arbitration, uh, decision-making control is surrendered to one or three arbitrators. Yeah. And in litigation, it's surrendered to either a judge and a jury or both. So retaining control is a, is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, second, mediation is confidential. Uh, trial is public uh, by law. Yep. So it's an ideal environment to resolve disputes that one or all parties do not want to be made public. And third, it can be scheduled. It's much more fluid. Uh, it uh, has opportunities for creativity that these other more structured uh, dispute resolution systems do not have. Yeah, and I imagine an element of that is, is the control. Since you, since you maintain control, you maintain some control over the scheduling and the process, right? Complete control. Yeah. And uh, mediations can be scheduled much faster at a lower cost than arbitration or trial. Are there certain types of cases that aren't a good fit for mediation? Are there some cases that would be better off if they were, were litigated or arbitrated? Uh, none that I can think of. I think with mediation, it's maybe more the timing. But I, um, uh, I'm not an unreflecting uh, mediation advocate. But I think mediation, the process is so flexible 
that it can be suited to any type of legal dispute. And uh, my panel members and I work in, in virtually every area of the law that you can possibly imagine. And I've never encountered any that presents uh, uh, frequent obstacles that are unique to that area of the law. Yeah, I can't you, think of them. You mentioned timing. What are some of the issues that come up with, with timing in mediation? Um, I think they're fairly straightforward. Uh, there is, on the one hand, more opportunity to, if, if the mediation is early, even pre, pre-litigation, uh, where the parties have not incurred uh, expense and emotional frustration to the degree that they do uh, a week before trial, sure. maybe a year or two after the, the dispute has arisen. So there's that. And set against that, uh, things that militate against early mediation are uh, densely factual disputes, uh, both in terms of uh, documents and people with knowledge, or arguably people with knowledge of uh, relevant facts. A little hard to uh, marshal all of that without some passage of time. Is there a particular type of case that you see more of than others? Uh, no, but I could. Yeah. I, I have in the past, uh, not by design, because one of the things that keeps my energy up is the diversity. Sure. Um, I, I know uh, people who say we'll mediate only employment disputes. And family law is an area of the law where m- family law mediators, with a few exceptions, they tend to only mediate family law disputes. Um, and you see this dynamic in healthcare and other areas, but, uh, or personal injury auto, for example. Yeah. I think statistically, those are the third most popular disputes that are in civil trials. And Lord knows I've done many. <laughs> and if I don't see another one, that will be okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition us a little bit. Um, I want to move into some of the common myths that surround mediation, because I know there's a lot out there. And uh, the first one I wanted to ask you about um, is is this idea that mediation isn't binding. And uh, I hear that a lot from, from various clients. Uh, and so I'm just curious, your thoughts on that myth. That's interesting. Well, I, it, it's actually a truth if the case doesn't resolve sure. uh, at or after the mediation. Um, when parties agree to settle in mediation, that agreement is memorialized right then and there in writing, at least in abbreviated form, and persons with authority, uh, and often their lawyers, sign what's called in the Pacific Northwest a CR2A agreement, in federal court something else, but still a CR2A. And those agreements, if properly executed, are enforceable and binding. Sure. So, yes and no. It's not binding until it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, the 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 next one is that I hear a lot is that uh, there are no there's no rules that govern mediation. It's just this free for all. It's the wild west when it comes to dispute resolution. Um, Curious, curious your thoughts on this one. Well, I I think it's more wild in the east and southeast in other states than it is in uh, the Pacific Northwest. Um, Washington's adopted the Uniform Mediation Act. Mm -hmm. There are uh, confidentiality privileges. Um, 
I think you can call those rules sure. uh, and practices. And the, our courts, state and federal, uh, in Washington state have been very protective of mediation confidentiality. I think there are, I don't know if you'd call them rules, but um, I try and insist upon civility, yeah. uh, sometimes in vain, but um, I think confidentiality is the most important yeah. rule. Parties have to know that what they communicate to the mediator in terms of their settlement positions is not going to be repeated in court or otherwise in public, and that the confidences that they tell they uh, communicate to the mediator aren't going to be re- uh, reported to, by the mediator to the other party or parties without clear authority. So that's a rule. Sure, sure. Beyond that, I think those are the two most important. Yeah. In terms of, you mentioned civility. Is that something where you, you're handing down rules to, to attorneys you work with and clients you work with? Or is that something where you're just hoping everyone kind of gets it? Well, you can make the request, and if you don't see it, you can, try, you can do something about it. Yeah. But... Um, you know, the armed party is is maybe not uh, an individual who's yeah. willing to listen. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the mediator really has no decision-making power. You do have the power of persuasion and the perception uh, of some authority. Sometimes the parties don't fully understand the limitations of the mediator, and that's an opportunity for the mediator, right. at least for those who are paying attention. Yeah, especially when you're walking in the room with a robe on like a judge, right? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> I tend to conduct these, you know, most of what I see in in one uh, room or the other, uh, people are really under stress. Sure. Um, that is displayed in often really unflattering and unfortunate ways, and sometimes it's, it's uh, uh, tragic, yeah. but very tangible. So I try and disarm uh, people, at least try and uh, present an atmosphere of calm so that you can get business done. Mm-hmm. Mediation is really a practical process. Yeah. And you know, I, I do want people to be able to speak freely Tell me what's on their mind and um, what they want to accomplish. Is there something, without disclosing too many of Greg's secrets here, is there something that you found helpful in in creating a calming atmosphere or one where people feel comfortable sharing the information that needs to be shared? Uh, Humor is always important. It's sometimes um, inappropriate, but... um, has to be handled Sometimes carefully. Sometimes that's the funniest time. <laughs> it is, yes, yes. And I think listening yeah. carefully and, and re- actually being interested in their problems. I don't think that's something you can fake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an- another, um, you mentioned this idea of persuasion and another, another thing I hear about mediation is that uh, facts matter less in mediation. So um, I think the idea is that um, whoever speaks the loudest or who is most persuasive in that setting um, may have a better, uh, there may be a better outcome for that individual or, or that party, um, despite the, the facts. Um, and I'm curious in your experience, is that something that you, that you see? No. Okay. Often the person who's talking the loudest is holding the weakest uh, hand. Yeah. Uh, facts are very important. Um, you know, in the 
there's usually a huge imbalance of power. Rarely are disputing parties of equal economic power. Mm-hmm. In other words, one can afford to go to trial even if they lose. Another, especially in the, the business world, it may kill the business. Yeah. So uh, facts matter a lot. Um, and I, I think most mediators that I know, we spend a lot of time preparing, um, including pre-mediation phone calls. Uh, we ask for written submissions that are sometimes very lengthy, sometimes uh, legal pleadings, uh, deposition transcripts, documents, business analyses are attached. There's a lot of reading involved in the mediation world for yeah, the mediator. Yeah. And so those uh, materials are usually very relevant to a party's legal position and they make the difference between winning and losing. So I guess you can call them facts. The law is sometimes useful to have on your side. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and precedent is sometimes useful. But, um, you know, much of it does depend on uh, credibility. You know, there are people who are going to testify. And are they credible or not? And so if there are uh, pre-existing facts that clearly demonstrate that a party is not credible or that a key witness is not credible, those facts are vital yeah. to the outcome of the dispute. Yeah, yeah. Do you, is it part of your role to educate the party's counsel if there are mistaken as to uh, issues of law? Is that something that you, do you ever discuss the, like their, their position if you think someone's fundamentally misunderstanding the, how um, the applic- application of a law is going to play out if they continue with litigation? Um, not directly, but often very actively indirectly. Uh, if it's, say, a key statute of limitations is, is, has expired, sometimes through careful questioning, uh, the realization uh, on the part of a lawyer can be obtained that way. But the mediator isn't supposed to be, we're supposed to be neutral. We're not supposed to be offering legal advice to anybody. They have their own lawyers. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, uh, I want to at least give a party a chance to realize a fatal blunder. Sure. And, you know, can I do that every time? (laughs) No. Sure. Um, I think a more serious thing is determining when a party no longer has uh, capacity to continue to negotiate. And, And those are calls that the mediator must make, on the other hand. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. I'm interested in that. Well, it's not supposed to be a coercive process. Yeah. And it's important that uh, if someone's going to make a binding settlement decision, that they have the mental and emotional capacity to do that. Right. And there are mediators who will not let parties leave until, you know, midnight. Well, you know, elderly or ill people... That they're or sleep-deprived people like me with three <laughs> three little kids at home, right? Voila. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I encounter people who are dying, uh, literally, and yeah. who won't be alive for their trial. Yeah. And so there's a, you, the mediator has to be cognizant of those and many other dynamics um, at once. Do you ever run into the issue of a party 
not seeming like they're there in good faith? And how do you deal with that? Um, well, yeah, the answer is yes, of course. Um, good faith at the same time is sometimes in the eye of the beholder. Sure. I mean, if I don't agree with you about what your case is worth, does that mean I'm acting in bad faith? I don't think so. That charge is often leveled against insurance companies or large self-insured corporations who have a different view. And that isn't good faith. I think uh, misrepresenting who will attend the mediation versus who in fact shows up, that's not good faith. Uh, scheduling a full day mediation knowing that you as say a defendant are never going to offer a dime and you're just trying to inflict an additional full day's expense on your opposition, that's bad faith. Is there... Uh, do you have any recourse as the mediator? Is that your yeah, question? Yeah, like, is, do, you, do you do anything? Uh, yeah, do you have any recourses? We've been talking long enough that he can already read your mind. Yeah. You, you, in federal court, yes, under Local Rule 39.1, uh, you can... The, the mediator has a duty to, quote, report to the court, not settlement positions, but you can send a signal. I think mediators can and do occasionally do the same in state court, but um, that's about it. Yeah, so do you, sometimes you find yourself in the position where you raise that issue with counsel? Of course, Yeah. of course, yes. Um, I, fortunately, I only encounter that particular dynamic maybe once every year and a half to two years. That's good. And it's often in an area of the law where mediation is required by state law. Medical malpractice is a good example. And uh, it, again, I can't emphasize enough, this is very rare. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But it's not pleasant to no. have it be your mediation when that happens because sure. you can't do anything. I'm curious, uh, exploring, we've, we've kind of been diving into your role as the mediator and, and some of the specific things that you encounter. Um, taking a step back, is there one specific goal that you have in mind with every mediation, or, do, or does that specific goal change from mediation to mediation? No, that's a very good question, Gavin. Uh, my goal is to help the party settle a case, period, at the end. Uh, some of my mediator friends, um, we, we are uh, schizophrenic uh, people by nature. We, we are both confident and humble, yeah. anxious. Uh, my view, which is not a healthy one, is that if I don't help the parties get the case settled, I may never see the lawyers or, in some cases, institutional clients again. Mm -hmm. And I have friends who feel exactly the same way. So on the one hand, that fear, uh, anxiety, is a huge motivating force. And the whole field of the, the business side of mediation is entirely reputational. Yeah. And uh, reputations are fragile. So that's my goal. Uh, other, uh, you know, more academically inclined mediators have these, what I call perhaps ungenerously transcendental <laughs> uh, objectives. Yeah. And I can just say the commercial world isn't interested. Yeah. They're not interested in uh, Zen like enlightenment. Right. Um, I don't know how to provide that. Yeah. Um, and it's not a currency. Mm -hmm. I can recommend a few books. 
Exactly. <laughs> right. The library. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I think it's uh, our, my panel members share that view. And we, you know, we don't just make these assumptions. We ask our clientele uh, periodically about their expectations. What do they expect of the mediator? Right. And in, in business and other commercial disputes, uh, they want the mediator to actively manage the process, weigh in on the merits very clearly, and that's what they think they're paying for. Yeah, yeah. And if they think they're paying for that, they are. Yeah, yeah. They better get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, beyond, so sticking with your role as a mediator, beyond um, making making clear to the individuals involved, and, and this is something I'm actually curious, so I'll ask you, do you... Do you make clear to the client, I don't represent either party here? Is that something that's done uh, in some written document prior to getting into the mediation? Or when does that occur? Um, it, if it, it occurs in a written mediation agreement. Okay. I am not uh, delusional uh, in thinking that everybody reads that sure. at all. Yeah. Uh, and I think they usually do not. Yeah. So I... Uh, make it clear in initial sessions, I accept in a, cert, a very certain few cases, I don't hold joint sessions. I argue about it with some of my friends who do. Yep. Uh, when I started, everybody started with a joint session. Now they're, uh, I think they're most effective in say a multi-party construction dispute where there is a lot of uh, often experts attend and there's mm -hmm. a lot of, I call it fact sharing. Yeah. But uh, my friends who like joint sessions, they, they say they want them so that the parties hear the same thing from the mediator. Uh, I don't say the same things. Sure. I say the th same things about impartiality and neutrality, yeah. Yeah. but not in the same way. Um, you, don't say, you don't speak the same to someone who's never been in a lawsuit before. This is their first and hopefully last one. Right. To somebody who's... Uh, say, a, a risk management professional who attends more mediations a year than most mediators do right. themselves. Right. Or someone that maybe is, is really fired up and emotional. Exactly. Or, or someone that's very calm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so beyond, beyond the, I don't represent any of the parties in this, um, what are some of the, the other ethical rules that you frequently come across um, while you're mediating in your role as a mediator, so specific to you as the mediator? Um, sometimes you encounter really bad behavior by attorneys. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. that is troubling. Yeah. What's the worst thing an attorney's done or one of them? Put him on the spot. Um, if you're comfortable uh, sharing. No, sure. <laughs> I, I would say in, in the last two years, not checking that the last of his four clients, uh, was armed before they came into the room and threatened <laughs> wow. to kill him and me and the entire defense contingent. Wow. I, I would say on an order of seriousness, that's the one that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, is that, that a commercial case? Uh, that was an employment case. Okay. That uh, a sexual harassment case. Okay. Um, so there's that. Um, I think sometimes a lawyer will be say, never having met his or her client until the actual mediation. 
I've seen that, uh, again, rarely, but occasionally in personal injury, where yeah. the case has been worked up by staff, um, the lawyer, uh, for whatever reason or reasons, is just introducing themselves to their client. Um, at the same time, they're introducing themselves to me. <laughs> That's when you're and, slapping yourself in the forehead with your uh, hand as, yeah. as they're walking in. Yeah. I mean, a lot, you know, the mediators uh, have to be trusted figures. And, and it is not easy to earn a stranger's trust in a matter of at most a minute or two. Yeah. And you have one opportunity. Yep. And when you lose it, or if you never get it, you're not going to be able to help much. Yeah, yeah. And we actually, we talk about that in the context of just meeting um, new clients or potential yes, clients. Right. It's kind of the same scenario. It is. You lose that trust at the beginning or don't gain that trust at the beginning or don't create a setting where that person's comfortable sharing information. It's nearly impossible to, to regain that trust and it's nearly impossible to do our job if they can't, they can't share the information or don't feel comfortable sharing the information that, that you uh, need. You're absolutely right. And, the, and the, the civil justice system sort of conspires uh, through delay, expense, uh, to uh, assist in the loss of that trust yeah. the longer the dispute goes on. Right. I, I remember clients and, you know, why is this taking so long? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when is the judge going to decide this? Um, early in my career, I was defending an antitrust case in federal court. And the federal judge, we, we thought we had a good um, basis to move to have the case dismissed. Um, and I only wish to this day that I had figured out this arcane jurisdictional issue, but I had a brilliant associate who did. Yeah. It took the judge six months to rule in our favor, God. and he wouldn't suspend uh, the discovery. So we had, my client had to keep spending a lot of money right. that turned out to be unnecessary. Yeah, that is, that's brutal. That's extreme, yeah. but that's a good example, uh, I think, of something that gives the public a lot of cynicism about lawyers and litigation. Yeah. Sure, sure. Deservedly. Yeah, yeah. And at least in mediation, you know, it's a pretty unusual mediation that's going to last more than one day. Yeah. And many complex cases, this is something I think somewhat peculiar to the Pacific Northwest and Seattle. Um, I am asked to do uh, high dollar complex mediations in four hours or less. Wow. All the time. Yeah. And, um, what sort of what sort of preparation time goes into that? So prior to the four hours you actually mediating, um, you know how much how much time do you have prior to that to spend with the information that you're going to be mediating? Oh, usually very little because it usually comes in at the last minute. Whether the mediation's four, six, eight hours, two days, yeah. we request uh, delivery of mediation submissions like two or three working days. Yeah. Ha. We may as well say 30 days. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it usually comes in the day before, the night before. Yeah. And one of my favorites years ago was mediation. The mediation materials came in in hour two of the mediation that was underway. Oh, oh perfect. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this is Kyle. And Gavin. From the Fieldwork Podcast. And this is your reminder that you can get CLE credits just for listening to this. But you're going to need your secret code. And that secret code is ROADBLOCK. Like something stuck in the road that you can't get around? Yeah, like, or any like, other type of barrier. Like a tree, maybe? Sure. 
or a small cone. Or an overturned semi. Yikes. Yeah. So your secret code is roadblock. Roadblock. And now, back to the show. Yeah, well, th- I mean, again, this is a great segue into uh, what I wanted to talk about next, which is um, sort of the, the quote-unquote uh, standard mediation um, process and how that's structured. And I'm curious, how does the whole process start? Well, it starts when people show up. Actually, it starts before that. Yeah. Um, when possible, and I can't do it every time, I like to have private telephone conferences with each of the lawyers. They can be short, mm-hmm. and they often occur before I have uh, really know much about the case, certainly before I've received anything in writing about the case. Yeah. So I just want to get the lay of the land, any uh, issues of human interest that are going to be helpful or harmful to the process. And lawyers like that. I like it. I learn some things sometimes that people are reluctant to put in writing. Yeah. I usually ask that question. Is there anything I should know that I won't find its way into your materials? Yeah. Do you, do you get candid answers to that question? Often. I'd yeah. say usually. Okay. And, uh, you know, sometimes I know from uh, who the lawyers are, uh, who the parties are, at least generally what kind of case it is. Yeah. I mean, employment lawyers are doing employment law, the litigators. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yes, hopefully, indeed. Good point. Yeah. Hopefully. That's not always the or, case. <laughs> If a vessel is named as a party, hmm, might be a maritime case. Yeah, sure. That sort of thing. Yeah. Or if a doctor or a hospital is named, um, you know, healthcare of some kind, yep. may or may not be a professional negligence case. Yeah. Or if a law firm is named, hmm, could be legal malpractice sure. at issue. Sure. So I learned a lot there. And then when the parties on the day of, uh, I try and get there early. And, uh, Usually, I'm, I'm separating the parties, or they, one of them is asked to be separated. Yeah. And I, I quickly uh, circulate a confidentiality agreement, explain it when necessary, and just sort of make, um, I guess I'd call it small talk. Yeah. Uh, just try to learn a little bit. And then uh, I usually will start with a plaintiff. However, if there's been a history of pre-mediation negotiating, not necessarily, but yeah. I'd say for the most part. And for the most part these days, there is no history of negotiating yeah. before the mediation. I'd say well under 10% of my cases has there been any negotiation other than, say, the claiming the claimant making a demand. Yeah. Sometimes that is hasn't even happened. Yeah, and do you find that that's a, this may be a typical lawyer, it depends answer to this question, but do you find that there... That the pre-mediation negotiations are helpful or hurtful to the actual mediation process? That is a very sophisticated question. Um, they, I would say they're actually more harmful. Okay. They're especially more harmful if an insurance company is involved and has made offers. Mm-hmm. Because the odds are, again, I say this based on experience, they're coming to the mediation with little more money, not mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. Because the offers they made previously, they made with the intention of getting the case settled, not setting it up for mediation. Right. And they had confidence in their evaluation because most insurance companies go through a highly structured process. Right. Uh, sometimes so structured that the settlement authority 
cannot be changed at the mediation. Wow. Usually it can be changed at least incrementally, but there are cases yeah. where it can't be. Yeah. Where more time is needed or certain people are unavailable. I had that happen today in a follow-up. Right. Um, so it, it never bothers me. It bothers me more when there's an established history of negotiating than when there is not. Yeah, yeah. How do, how do people uh, find you? So it's like taking a step back before they even reach out to you or um, at the time they reach out to you, do you know what, like why, like how, how your name gets in front of them or, or how, you know, how, how you get um, um, to help them? Not entirely. The mediator selection process is a, in my view, and I realize this sounds cynical, a highly irrational process. Highly irrational. Uh, and sometimes it can be simply uh, a winnowing process. I propose uh, Joe, you propose Mary. There's mutual rejection. And, and it's a poor way to do it, I think. So I usually don't know. I mean. I have done a lot of work with a lot of lawyers who are still practicing and a lot of insurance companies and corporations. So I assume if I see somebody repeatedly, they might have something nice to say. Right. Um, I'm always intrigued when both parties are strangers, at least to me, or even the lawyers. Uh, that's great. I was on a call yesterday with uh, a firm in Los Angeles uh, that I'm completely unfamiliar with in some sort of airline contract dispute. I'm delighted I get to uh, work with them. Um, I'd never even heard of the firm, and it's a big one. Yeah. So, but the local lawyer I've worked with, not a lot, done a little bit with her firm, um, I have no idea. I think what probably helped in that case was my experience with jams, mm, okay. yeah. just generally, because it's very well known in Southern yeah. California and, for that matter, Northern California. So there's a badge of credibility, I think. Do you have a, a process that you would recommend if uh, an attorney's thinking about trying to identify a mediator or uh, maybe they're even thinking about putting some sort of a clause into an agreement. Is there a, a process you would recommend for identifying a, a mediator? That's a very good question. And I should probably have thought more about what I'm about to say. Uh, yeah, I think so. I would ask the lawyer recommending this person why. What attributes about the recommended mediator uh, are you? do you like? I would... I, there's nothing like direct communication. I would have a conversation with the mediator who's re re been recommended. And I would ask that person, who else should I talk to about you? And believe me, if the stakes are high enough, and I think even if they're not, that is a really important conversation to have. Why not get it from the horse's mouth? Yeah. Um, and there, there is a great deal of... Uh, I think error made in mediator selection and lawyers I think I'm one too can't help micromanaging sometimes mm -hmm. the selection you know like I want a person they'll sort of psychoanalyze maybe an opposing party and say well let's see right we need a person who can manipulate this person because and that's just BS right there's too much else going on that the mediator has to handle 
competently. And the reality is if you've done thousands of cases, uh, you've encountered almost every kind of personality imaginable. The, the bigger challenge, I think, going forward now is the multicultural aspect of many disputes. Mm-hmm. That includes, but it's not limited to language barriers right. and customs and negotiating approaches and philosophies that are very hard to, for their own lawyers to learn if people from other lands and harder still for mediators to learn. But unless you have a, at least try and understand some of those things, you can't get to first base. When, when you're mediating, is each party always represented by an attorney or do you, do you have situations where you just have two individuals, they're not represented or one individual's not represented? I'm curious about those type of scenarios. Um, occasionally one. Okay. Um, I, I can't think of a case that I've had uh, either as a mediator or arbitrator where both parties are unrepresented. That does occur frequently in family law, mm-hmm. very frequently. Yeah. And, and just the idea of it makes me very nervous. Yeah, sure. Even having one party unrepresented is worrisome. We have a special agreement uh, with them where they, you know, really it's made clear and they agree that we're not providing legal advice and they are encouraged strongly to have the settlement terms looked at by an independent lawyer. And I will sometimes ask the opposing party to pay a fixed amount for that Yeah. and make sure it's done. Yeah. Because just to avoid collateral attack of the integrity of the settlement. Yeah. Um, it can be very challenging. The last time I've dealt with this was a legal malpractice case and the plaintiff could not find a lawyer to take his case. Mm. That didn't stop him. Yeah. But he was so stressed, he actually had a heart attack at the mediation oh before gosh. we could actually wow. officially begin. Wow. That was a pretty unnerving experience. Yeah. Seriously. And a first for me. Yeah. Hopefully it lasts. Yeah. Yes. You mentioned. I, I hope so. You mentioned uh, settlement agreements and. Um, in a situation where one party is unrepresented, um, or even, I, I guess I'll, I'll broaden it to a situation even when both parties are represented, what's, uh, do you have any role in the actual settlement agreement itself? So are you reviewing that? Are you having conversations about the terms of that agreement? Um, I try not to. Occasionally I'm asked to review it. Uh, frequently I'm named, unbeknownst to me, as the arbitrator okay. over yeah. settlement disputes. Um, and... Uh, I, our philosophy at my company is that we don't prepare them. Mm-hmm. We insist that somebody prepare them, that if there's an agreement in principle, nobody leaves without something signed, uh, for sure. But um, I, I think it's the lawyer's responsibility to protect their client. Right. And to really understand what's important about the language. Um, they know or should know how best to do that. Right, right. And that's not your role as the mediator. Not to, at all. To dig into the, the details of no, those terms. And, no, it really isn't. Yeah. Um, I will say that I do like non-monetary terms like uh, confidentiality and non-disparagement mm-hmm. to be discussed at the outset, not at the 11th hour. Sure, yeah. Yeah, because those tend to be terms that people want to fight over at the end. I have... Sp- sometimes hours just yeah. on the language yeah. and and that people are tired 
They shouldn't be ambushed. Sometimes there's a holdup. Oh, you want me to sign confidentiality? That'll cost you another half a million dollars. Right, right. Oh, please. In certain areas of the law, certain terms are customary. Yep. They're not justification for doubling the value of the settlement, for example. In those type of scenarios where you have conversations early on in the mediation about some of the terms that will hopefully eventually land themselves in a settlement agreement towards the end, um, is it just kind of a handshake situation where you say, hey, you know, here's how we understand or here's the terms that we understand early on that we want when it comes to the settlement agreement? Or are you actually are you having these parties sign something or put something in no, writing no. related um, to that? It's just uh, getting it out there to uh, have it be an expectation and not come as a surprise. Yeah, sure. There's usually, it's usually, uh, I think you'll advise to try and cram down uh, part of, but not the whole settlement. Yeah. Uh, It gets things off to a very negative tone. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of roadblocks and running into different roadblocks in mediation, um, uh, we just talked about the the idea of certain non-monetary terms in settlement agreements becoming roadblocks at the 11th hour. What are some of the other common roadblocks you run into during mediation and maybe some tips for avoiding some of those for, for our listeners? I can probably identify more roadblocks than I can tips. Sure. <laughs> uh, first of all, the roadblock, a roadblock exists uh, when people arrive. Right. And maybe several. So first, trying to find out what they are. For example... Um, I do a fair amount of work with public entities, usually state local government entities. Well, I learned a long time ago as a litigator, you have the merits of the dispute, the legal merits and the factual merits, but then there's a political dynamic that can actually trump all of those. And so sometimes trying to understand and learn what that is is critical to achieving a settlement. And maybe it can't be done if the political disincentive to settle is so great. Sure. Yeah. So there's one. Yep. Um, one I find troubling uh, is a, a party who is divinely inspired has been told through prayer or other uh, process that only victory awaits them, mm-hmm. and it will be beautiful indeed. Um, getting through to that person in terms of actual risks in their position that can be very significant is very challenging. Sure, sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a situation, it sounds like, that is one where it's difficult to reason with someone that perhaps is unreasonable or, or well who's someone who's driven purely by faith and hope sure yeah you by definition they're not amenable to reason right so that's troubling yeah um, that reminds me of a, a podcast i've been listening to is uh about revolutions and this particular set of them was about the english revolution in the uh 1640s and uh, King Charles the first just was a, not a very skilled negotiator because he thought God was on his side and he just kept refusing reasonable offers until they cut off his head. So sometimes that doesn't work out. I, I think it usually doesn't work out, perhaps not in such grisly fashion, yeah. but um, it, it usually doesn't work out. Um, I, I learn a lot from the cases uh, I'm never able to settle 
And I work hard and my panel members work hard after mediation. If the mediation doesn't come together, we work very hard to get them settled. Um, I was able to get one done today that I mediated in the last week of September. Wow. Um, and then there was a, for a couple of months, nothing much, and I got back into it. I was asked to get back into it in early December, and I've worked on it a lot since then, including through the holidays. And I'm very happy uh, for the plaintiff who's going to end up with a lot of money, but she lost her husband. Um, it's going to enable her, I think, to feel financially secure and hopefully give her some opportunities to move forward however best she can. Um, so we don't give up. Persistence is a key quality, and it's a distinguishing factor because some mediators um, who maybe may, may intend to do not, and we do. Uh, this is a little plug. We do, and I will not tolerate uh, the failure by any of my panel members to follow up. How do you, so when, when parties are, so we've been talking about roadblocks, how, when parties are, are um, you know, reasonably far apart, like during the beginning or middle of the, you know, the mediation, how do you, how do you get them to um, come closer to an agreement? Do you have any, any, any strategies that you can share? Um, I, th I think it's pretty situational. Um, patience, a lot of r repetition, um, and, and sometimes um, for plaintiffs, people asking for financial relief, um, I, I usually do suggest it's a mistake to cut short any negotiating until you've received the last best offer possible. Otherwise, you've paid for a process, you've had to listen to somebody like me all day, and you're going to leave uninformed. And to me, that is a cardinal error. And uh, institutional players, like insurance companies, large corporations, there's always a last offer. It's not elastic. Yeah. They know to the penny going in what they're going to pay that day. And maybe it can be adjustable slightly, often not. So as a negotiator, it's crazy to me uh, to leave without getting that information. Because only then are you in, in the most informed position to make what's often a tough call. Yeah, yeah. Do you go forward or do you stop? Yeah. What about those, situation where, those situations where um, mediation doesn't work? So you don't end up with a settlement mm -hmm. at the end. You don't end up with a signed settlement agreement. Right. Um, you mentioned following up, being persistent. Um, what's the next step usually beyond just you know, from a mediator's standpoint, following up and seeing if there's anything else that can be done. Um, where do the parties generally turn to from there? It varies tremendously. The, the reason it may fail, there may be a pending motion, a dispositive motion that needs to be decided before mm -hmm. there's clarity. Um, key players may not have been available. Um, crazy as that sounds, that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. So in my world, I'd say maybe 15 to 18% of the time, follow-ups required, Yeah, it usually works. But what triggers it, how quickly, depends and, and varies tremendously. I, I like, you know, if it's a case that's, and it also depends on where the case is in its 
trial path. Yeah. You know, if uh, I was asked to jump back into a case uh, today that has been continued twice now, has a trial date about six weeks away. <clears throat> well, that puts people's feet to the fire. And do they really want to go to trial? And th that was a case where there was no offer at mediation. A guy flew halfway across the country only to tell the plaintiff, I'm not going to offer you any money. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It happens, again, very rarely. Yeah. Uh, sometimes a second mediation session, there's sort of an agreed list of chores, mm -hmm. maybe depositions that need to be taken, uh, just more facts. I had a fire loss case recently where it was probably too early. And the parties agreed. So they left. They've sort of agreed to do certain things, three or four steps, and and then we'll either, they'll either come back or I'll follow up by phone and email, which happens most of the time. Um, I have I have very few cases a year that go to trial from failed mediations. Uh, two in 2018. I've had one so far this year that I mediated in late 2018. Um, That's probably why people keep calling you to mediate. <laughs> well. Um, it, and I learn a lot from what happens at trial. Yeah, yeah. Um, in these three cases, very different cases, uh, in two of the, in the one I mentioned, well, not the one I mentioned, another one, there was no offer in a professional negligence case, and the defense won. Wow. Plaintiff got nothing. Yeah. In a second, there was a death in kind of sort of police custody case, although the deceased was not, had not really been arrested. They were just trying to help him. And he died um, before that could occur. And it was a, an, there were a lot of oddities in the case and a lot of things that weren't very clear. But the defense offered a lot of money, I thought, uh, to settle it. And the plaintiff, would, uh, the attorneys, I think, were really instrumental in advising their client not to take it. So that case didn't even get to the jury. The judge dismissed it wow. at the end of the plaintiff's case. So again, zero. Yeah. And the third case that just finished about less than two weeks ago was a landslide case. And there were many questions about, did the upper property owner do something negligent to cause the slide? And did the slide even originate on that person's property? Nevertheless, quite a bit of money was offered before trial, but it wasn't enough for the plaintiffs. Um, and someone I know quite well was defending it, who is not one a person to underestimate, very skilled. Uh, he called me to tell me the jury was out 14 minutes and came in with a defense verdict. Wow. It's a good day for that attorney. That 14 client. minutes is yeah. not much time. No. Yeah. Not even time enough to have a cup of coffee. Yeah. Wow. Or a glass of water. Yeah. Or to even chat. Probably can't be anything Make other small than talk. a defense verdict in 14 minutes. Yeah. No. So um, I find those things instructive. And I have very few cases historically, going back a long time, where plaintiffs have done better or significantly better at trial. Um, I don't know why that is. Well, I, I do know why that is. I think jury trials are hard to win. Yeah. Whatever the reason you're in front of a jury the human dynamics of having to convince in state court at least 10 out of 12 and in federal court all the jurors is it's a high hurdle yeah very high sure. hurdle yeah it opens up uh 
opens up a whole new dynamic for sure. Um, I'm curious, m- moving on to, uh, I, 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 I'm hesitant to call it practice management tips, but uh, I'll call it practice management tips. Um, moving on to, I'm curious if you have any helpful resources for attorneys that are preparing for mediation. So what are the things that you found are helpful? Attorney comes in and is prepared with what, and, and it's helpful to the process. Um, I've actually written a little pamphlet called So You Want to Mediate that is available on Amazon. I have some copies with me that may be complimentary there we this go. evening. Cool. Yeah. And I really wrote it for the clients, not so much the lawyers, yeah. maybe really young lawyers. That I think is helpful. Sure. Um, I, I think that uh, other than that, um, most of the writing about mediation is done by people who teach it and who don't actually do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think there are probably resources, say, in the family law area that are probably very helpful because there are requirements. Uh, First, mediation itself is required, and then certain things have to occur at mediation. That's unusually uh, specific. Mm -hmm. Um, And other than that, I, I no resources come to mind. Yeah. I can think of a case I mediated in Spokane where I got to the law firm early and the plaintiff was there and he proudly told me he had looked me up and he had done some research about mediation. And I said, well, let me have it. Tell me what, what you know. Yeah. And he'd spent quite a bit of time. That's very unusual. Yeah. He had a, a pretty significant case and it meant a lot to him. And I'm not sure his lawyer thanked him for all of his uh, research, but um, so hey, this was the client that actually did the, the client, research. Huh. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. that's uh, interesting. It stands out because yeah. I, I don't hear that very often. Yeah, um, there are a lot of books written about mediation and some really good ones, but they're really written more for other mediators or lawyers. Yeah, I think they're dense. They're hard to get into for lay people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, and, the, and so the name of the, 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 the book, I've called it a book before, you've corrected me and called it a pamphlet, but uh, you said, yeah. so, 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 you, so you want to mediate? Yeah. Okay, awesome, cool. A, a reader's guide, it's very short. Yeah. It's a modest volume with much to be modest about. Yeah. <laughs> in the words of, I think, Oscar Wilde. Yeah. But um, I'm thinking of expanding it. Um, it probably needs it, but then I've got to clarify who I'm really writing it for. Right, right. You got to know the it, audience. This is really for parties, and even so, it, it's maybe too lawyer oriented. Well, I hate to wrap up uh, this super interesting conversation, but we're coming up against the end of our time. Um, it has been a fascinating conversation with you, Greg. Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you for asking me, Kevin. We are the Fieldwork Podcast, a show where continuing legal education is delivered through conversations about law and business. Mm-hmm.